Well, good morning. We are in the back book of Matthew. Um, last week, we uh, spent some time talking about John the Baptist and, and some of the doubts that he had brought um, through his disciples to Jesus and, and just talked about what it means for us to doubt and how that's okay. If you don't have a Bible, slip your hands up and the ushers will hand one out to you. We are in Matthew um, chapter 11. And so Jesus answers, answers John the Baptist's disciples and then turns into the crowds and starts teaching to them what, what he believes about John and who John was and, and kind of solidifying the character and, and the person um, of, of, of the messenger and what Jesus um, was told about beforehand, what everyone had prophesied. It's basically saying John the Baptist was who we thought he was. He was this person and, and the doubts are, are okay, but, but what we do with those doubts is what we talked about last week. And then Jesus, after he, he kind of does this really gentle and, and pleasant and nice uh, conversation with the crowd about John the Baptist and who he is, he, he turns kind of a corner here. And, and I don't know if he's just frustrated, but I know at this point somehow he speaks without sinning. So I'm not sure how he would do this because the way I read this is, is exceptionally different than I think the way he um, intended to. But Jesus turns to the crowd and starts beginning to push really, really hard on them. And so, so the, the subject matter today is, isn't something that we're all going to be like, oh, that's so fun to talk about. It's so easy. Thanks, Jesus. And what we're going to realize is as we get further into Matthew, um, Jesus is gonna, not going to let up. He's going to hit us pretty hard. And so Matthew chapter 11, verses 16 through 24, Jesus is, is really, really pushing hard here. And so let's just go ahead and, and dig in and read it, and then we'll get into this. Um, ch- uh, chapter 11, verses, verses 16 through 24. Where are you? There you are. So he says, but to, but to what shall I compare this generation? So he just had said, look, if you accept it, John is the, the messenger, the prophet that had been foretold for so, many long, so, for so long. So if you have ears, hear it. And then he goes on, now what shall I compare this generation? He asks a question, somewhat rhetorical because he's going to go on and answer it. <laughs> so, what, so, what shall I, so what shall I compare this generation? So, so what, in what way would I talk to you people that are out here today? This generation, the people that are there, the generation was a common term for the Israelites, and they would have said, this is the generation in place. He says, now, now, now what am I going to compare you guys to? Like, okay, what, what do I do with you? He goes on to answer it. He says, he says, it is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. May I just pause real quickly on that last statement, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, was meant to be this harsh, harsh statement to Jesus that has turned in for us such an absolutely beautiful statement. Well, this is one of those things that, that all of us sitting here today can be very, very, very appreciative and, and experience in a great way the fact that Jesus is a friend to tax collectors and sinners. And he says, yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And then Jesus starts into this. He says, then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre or Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, Will you be exalted to heaven? Another rhetorical question that he just goes on to answer. You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. 
And so Jesus takes his turn. He's, he's very gentle and nice about John. And then he, he kind of turns and just kind of begins this, this woe statement and attacking people. But at first he begins it with talking about, okay, now how am I going to, how, how do I relate what's going on with you as a generation? And what he's doing is he's talking about John, he, he's talking about John the Baptist and Jesus, their ministry. And he says, look, you're like children. And what's common, if you have kids, they'll, they'll emulate or they'll copy what you do. And so in, 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 in Israel, in the Jewish culture, in the, in the marketplaces, it would have been common for a wedding. There would have been flute playing, and there would have been a big celebration that everyone would have seen. It wouldn't have been just some kind of closed-off area. It would have been a whole community thing. And similar, we've talked about before, in funerals, they would hire, like, hire professional mourners that would come and play, and people would wail and cry for funerals, and it would be this very big production. And what he's saying is it's like children sitting in the marketplace that, that, that people are playing a flute and like, I don't want to do that. That doesn't sound fun. And they kind of sit there kind of stubborn and snotty, like, I don't want to do that. And so they say, okay, well, then let's, let's do this. Let's, let's, let's have a funeral. Let's, let's, let's pretend that we're mourning. And I don't want to do that either. And they, they, they cross their arms. And this was an incredible insult because what he's basically saying is, look, this generation, you're like children. And then there's other times in the, in the, in the Bible when, when he uses the term children, it's an enduring and, and, a, and a beautiful thing. But this is one of those times where he's basically saying, you're immature. You're, you're so immature and you are like children. And the whole reason why he's doing this is if you look back at Matthew chapter 3, John the Baptist came saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is, it, is near. Repent, repent. And it was this message of repent, it's coming. The, I'm the one that's beforehand. The Messiah is coming, repent. And then Jesus has been doing all of these things, showing the kingdom of God, not in the way that they had interpreted or believed it would come. They wanted to see it with a sword and violence and crushing Rome. But yet he's saying, look, the kingdom of heaven is, is, is one individual at a time. It's personal. It's not what you expect. I'm doing something very, very different. I'm not just going to crush and come in and, Lord, I'm redeeming everything one person at a time. And so, so the message all along had been repent. And we've talked about this before. Repentance isn't, is, it's a military term that means to turn and walk the other way. But the problem with that is so many of us view repentance in such a negative way. Yet this is the whole message of John the Baptist who just came with doubts. And this is, this is the reason. We, we hear it in verse um, 16 or, or 20 where Jesus says, he began, at this time, began to denounce the cities because they would not repent. And so repentance is something. It's not just I don't like what I did. Oh God, forgive me. It's, it's I loathe what I've done. Father, forgive me, and it's a turn from that sin, and it's walking to God. It's a, it's a change not just in thought and in feeling, but in action. Repentance is an active motion. It's not just something you, you do flippantly. It's not something you just do when it's convenient. It's not something you do when, when the circumstances are perfectly right. It is, it is an action of turning from. And what had happened is when John the Baptist came, he came and he didn't dress in any fancy clothes. Jesus had just talked about it. Like, what did you go out to see? He wasn't dressed fancy. He didn't eat anything. He, he had given up so many luxuries of life. He basically challenged the lifestyle of every single Jew, saying, I'm giving my life as a, as a Nazarite vow for a life. I'm giving my life to God in the service of him. And that was hostile to most Jews at that time. Whoa, 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 John, that is crazy whoa, you, you, you can't do this. And what they did is instead of, instead of seeing his devotion to God, they, 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 they turned their head and, you know, he's got a demon. He's crazy. Look at what he's eating. This, this guy's messed up. 
Obviously, he's not from God. And so they had no desire to repent. Instead, they rejected. Remember that word offense last week? We talked about offense isn't just I'm offended by it. It's actual rejection of. And so the, the people had rejected John the Baptist because his lifestyle was crazy. Well, then Jesus comes on the scene. And he comes in and he eats and he drinks and he doesn't do the mourning. And essentially, John is, is similar kind of to a funeral and Jesus is to a wedding. Right, and the funeral is the morning, it's sad, we, we pull back, it's like, oh, I can't have that. Well, then we bring the, the, the celebration. And we eat, and then they say, oh, he's a drunkard. He's a drunkard, he's a glutton. Look at him, he, he, doesn't, even, he doesn't even fast when he's supposed to fast. He's, he's, he's out of control. He hangs out with sinners and tax collectors. This isn't the kingdom of God, and so they rejected that. And so Jesus is saying, you're like a bunch of children sitting in the marketplace saying, I don't want to do that. I don't like this. see, when it comes to repentance, I think it's important for us to remember it's not always what we expect. See, my assumption is, and, and this is, a, 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 I think, a safe assumption, is that every single one of us, in some point in the next week, are going to need to repent of something. We're going to sin against God. We're going to sin against someone else. It, it, uh, because we've sinned against God, it will spill out the horizontal to other people, and we will need to repent. We'll have bitterness inside of us. We'll have unforgiveness. We'll have anger and we sin in it. And, or we will be prideful, lustful. We'll get drunk. We'll look at porn. Look, we're, we're, something's going to happen. And here's the problem. is what Jesus is saying. is A lot of people sit in their seat and go, I don't really like two options, so I'm just going to sit right here and cross my arms. It can't really mean that. And this is the way we do it, I think, in modern day. Back then it was, I'm going to oppose John and I'm going to oppose Jesus. To us today, what we do is we don't really, really think about John, but we, we think about Jesus and we oppose him in the sense that, oh, you know what? Jesus is my friend and he loves me. Therefore, it's okay if I just keep doing this. He'll forgive me. But yet we never act in obedience towards repentance. We never display the thing that God calls us to. And this is important because Jesus, like I said, he, he, he begins to to say woe to a bunch of um, cities that weren't repentant. And so there's this beautiful yet painful contrast where Jesus is saying, look, the problem is that you have these expectations of what it's supposed to look like, and if it doesn't fit those expectations, you believe you're justified in not repenting. And then what he does, he does something astronomical. He starts comparing Gentile cities to, to Jewish cities. And he's basically saying the Gentile cities are better off than the Jewish cities, which is extremely offensive. He's saying, it's, hey, look, it, we don't know what happened in Tyre, Sidon. We hear that Jesus would go up north sometimes there. We don't have a, a recollection of there's no stories in the Gospels. The end of, of John tells us there's so many more things that weren't portrayed in all of the Gospels, but either way, a bunch of things happened in Tyre Sidon. But we know that always in Scripture, it's used as a negative and evil place. And we all, most of us would know the story of Sodom. And, and, and Sodom, typically in prophecy or in text, is used as the place and the people at which we don't want to be. It wasn't a literal example of this and that. It's those are the people that we understand that we don't want to be that. That is evil. And so he starts pitting. He says, it's better for these people than the ones that have had it. It's better for those that are Gentiles than for those of you that are Jewish. Because you've been experiencing the work of God. You've been experiencing not only the, the pre-runner to the kingdom of God, but yet you, 
You said, no, you put your thumb up, no way, I'm not doing that. But you've been seeing the tangible kingdom of God through the person and the work of Jesus Christ in front of you. Capernaum is where Jesus set up shop. This is where he spent most of his time. And he said, I've been doing this and doing this and doing this, and you still reject repentance. Because I didn't fit the mold of what you expected. So he goes in this woe. It's a, this woe word is a very powerful and direct statement. Um, kind of mean, actually. It's a prophetic condemnation. And he's, he's contrasting these pagan cities with this Jewish, this Jewish culture. And, it, and everywhere we know, whatever, whatever Tyre and Sidon had done, they're denounced for their wickedness in Isaiah, in Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, um, in two different places. So we know that whatever they did, however it was, it was bad. And Jesus is saying it's, it's better for them to not be you. And so it would be really easy for us to look into this and go, okay, well, let's talk about judgment and all those other things. I just want to sit on the fact that Jesus had performed many, many miracles. We talked about the doubt that John had last week, right? John experienced, he dunked Jesus in the water and experienced the Holy Spirit descending on him and, and God telling him, this is my son, and he even doubted when he was in prison. But this is different than doubt. This is straight up rejection. This is, I'm not doubting anymore. It's that I'm going to justify my doubts in action by rejecting your truth. And I'd love to talk about parallels between all those, but I think what the issue is really for us is, is our own repentance. The issue that, we, that we, when we come to this text is, is essentially a lot of us are complacent religious people. We go to church when it's convenient. We tip God with some money. We try and serve. We kind of do our penance, but we see no life application. And when Jesus was contrasting the two, he says, look, wisdom is known by her deeds. He's saying, you think you're so smart? Pharisees and religious people, you think you've got this religious system figured out? You're so smart? Let your wisdom be shown by the deeds. And he's saying, look, I just blew your minds out. He's not saying this, my interpretation. I blew your minds up with the Sermon on the Mount. Right? I gave this, this ridiculous, theological, messy, awesome message that all of you are still going to just, I don't even know what he's saying. But yet you've seen that wisdom interacted and lived out daily by my hands. So why, why do you reject? So let me pose that question to you guys. We have the story incomplete. We talked last week about incomplete revelation, meaning sometimes we just don't know what God's doing, right? John was struggling to see the whole picture. We have the whole picture written out in front of us. Yet when it comes to certain sins in your life, you won't repent. When it comes to certain aspects, you won't repent. And my assumption is, is because you have this weird expectation. Similar to a lot of the Jews in this day. They, they expected the kingdom to be something totally different. When it wasn't what they wanted it to be, they rejected it. My assumption is, is that right now you have absolute hatred for someone in your life. And you're justifying that. You're saying it's okay to hate because of what they did. You are rejecting the truth. You are sitting in a spot with your arms folded saying, I'm not going to do it. And you're pouting. 
And Jesus is saying, to what do I say to this generation? You're like, children. When the truth is in front of you, the truth is right in front of you, and you have that truth, and yet you're rejecting it because you don't like it or it doesn't make you happy. You're justifying sin to continue to go on. Let me lay out a couple more examples of that. I'm going to use one that's probably pretty easy. It's alcohol. The Bible teaches about alcohol. We see wine. We see all those sorts of things in there. But yet you continually abuse alcohol. And you justify, well, uh, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't drunk. I was just a little tipsy. You have the Spirit of God inside of you. You're called to lead, be led by the Spirit of God. Not to give in to drunkenness. Now you, you justify it. You say, well, you know, but, but Jesus is, is he's understanding. And then here's how you know that you're justifying it. You ready? This is, this, is, this is how it works. You're sitting there sipping back on your Mai Tai or whatever you drink with your pinky up, however you do it, right? And you're like, big one apparently. And, and you're sitting there drinking it back and you're getting a little tipsy. And, and, then, and then someone starts talking about someone else. You're like, oh, I hate that person. I, I can't believe they do that. And you start condemning someone else's actions all the while you're sitting in a spot of disobedience, of unrepentance. Look, it's, it's okay to struggle. It's okay to struggle with this, but, but the point is, is that when you repent, when you truly repent, when, you're, when your heart is, is you begin to hate that which you did. The Spirit of God replaces that. You begin to hate. It's, it's the lion analogy that I gave you guys a few weeks ago. It's uh, I don't want to train a pet lion that can eat me. I want to shoot this lion. And I want to be free from this. Some of you are justifying your lack of repentance or your rejection to God because you just haven't gotten the right sign. Right? You ever done this? Don't raise your hand. Right? God, if you would just, I won't. Or I will you were bartered with God. God, if you, would just, if you would just do this, I would then. You're waiting for some miraculous sign. Look, I, I can sit in condemnation over the Jewish people that are around Jesus at the time going, dude, you guys saw some ridiculously crazy stuff, but yet you didn't believe? What's wrong with you? Like seriously, how, 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 do, you, how do you miss it? But yet in my own life, I can miss it daily. In individuals. I can miss it daily in the way I interact with people while I'm driving. I, it's bad, guys. It's bad. I shouldn't drive much. We're waiting for some sign. And here, here's, here's the thing. Some of you right now, you're going, okay, well, I'm, you know, we're going to get married anyway, so what's a little fool around doesn't really matter. Well, that's not what God called you to. And what if it ends? Then where are you at? Then you're like, well, I'll, I'll be 21 at some point, so I might as well drink now. Yeah, but that's, dis, that's disobedience, direct disobedience to God's commandments. Well, if you would just show me that, that there's this thing. Look, every single one of us that have been a follower of Jesus for a month, every single one of us has surrendered our life to Jesus for a month, we recognize something incredibly miraculous in our life. The difference. 
right? Like you didn't have a desire to obey. You didn't have a desire to do these things. And yet they're, they're all of a sudden, they start changing. Like, why don't I want to do that anymore? Why does that lose its taste? Why does that bring no value? And we see this miraculous thing. But yet so many of us are waiting for some specific scripture to say, well, okay, you know what? I know it says don't get drunk, but, but I only had two drinks and I did it over this many hours. And this is, and we start playing this gray scale. If I can just add a little bit of grayness to it, I can justify my interaction. It's, it's, it's like this video. I don't know if you've ever seen this video, and, and I think it's about, the point of the video is about the miscommunication between a husband and wife or, or that, that thing, and it's the, she has a nail in her head. You ever seen that video? Okay, this, this girl, I'll explain it to you. So this girl has this massive nail in her head, but the video starts with where you can't see her head. And she starts out with like, I just, I just, I can't get rid of this nagging feeling, and I just don't feel right, and I just... I have this, this horrible headache, and it won't go away. And the guy sitting next to her is like, well, you know, you have a nail in your head. She's like, don't try and fix it. Just listen to me. And he's like, well, okay. Um, and she's like, well, I, you know, I just, I wish that I could get rid of this feeling, and I wish I could help. And it's this massive nail sitting out of her head. And he's like, look, honey, it's the nail. She's like, would you stop trying to fix me? Just listen. And then they talk, and she's like, it, he's like, yeah, it must be really, really hard. You know, this is ridiculous. And then they go to hug and the nail pokes him in the head. And he's like, oh, come on, let's just take this out. The point is this, is most of us have something in our life that's so obvious, but we choose to ignore it because it doesn't feel right. We, we choose to, to live a life of unrepentance because, well, we're happy. Happy. We have this, this glaring, obvious pride that's, that's just, just waylaying all the relationships around us and hollowing us out with our Father. And it's just obvious, and most people around you can go, yep. But yet we will, we will continue to point to something else. Well, I wouldn't be this way if I wasn't always right. I had a friend say that once. I wouldn't be so prideful if I wasn't always right. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, good job, buddy. Well, I really, I really love her, and she loves me, and if I pull back now, she'll feel like I don't love her anymore. It's pretty obvious. What's interesting to me is that if you sit down with anyone, if you guys sat down with me and started talking through some of my issues, I'd probably be able to go, you know, I'm really struggling with this, this, and this, and it would probably be like you opened up a book and read the next sentence. Hey, Brent, I think what you're supposed to do is right here. A repentant heart goes, oh, my, that's the truth. You're right. An unrepentant heart rejects that. No, it can't be the nail. It, it can't be that. If, if they would, then I would. The problem with this, guys, is that Jesus is, is, is pushing against your comfortable religiousness. He's saying, look, just because you've been in and around the church, just because you maybe repented at one point doesn't mean that you have this, this life to live exactly how you want that may or may not be obedient to God. Jesus is saying, look, I love you. This is awesome, and I'm going to transform your heart, but I'm still calling you to obedience. And those of you that continually just say, ah, well, who cares? It's not that big a deal. That is opposition. That is rejection to Jesus. So what are you going to do? Are you going to keep justifying the nail in your head because you're waiting for some other sign? You're expecting something to come in some other way? 
you know, I gave my life to Jesus, but I expected this, this, and this, and none of those would come to fruition, and therefore, I'm out. This is John the Baptist. He didn't doubt to run from Jesus. He ran right to Jesus in his doubts. Hey, I thought, and here I am. But yet, there's a number of us in this room that just keep going through the motions that are absolutely standing in rejection to our God. We, we just keep going through the motions. We keep waiting for some sign. Look, my assumption is, is that if, if the people in Capernaum missed it, that if you're waiting for some specific sign in your life, you, you might miss it too, right? If they, they missed, like, Jesus, you know, Lazarus stepped up and walked out of the, whoa, that guy was dead. He's alive now. Great. And it must have been a demon or he's, you know, he's not it. It doesn't make sense. They missed it. I'm assuming that today we're going to miss it. So if you're holding out for some sign where Jesus is going to, you know, bring you extra finances or you're going to do all these other things, my assumption is that sign isn't going to work when the, the ultimate sign is, is the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. If that's not enough, then, then you've missed it. If the person at work of Jesus Christ isn't enough for your life to live in a repentant life, turning from your old self, continually letting the Spirit lead you, then, then you, you, you've missed Jesus. And my fear is, some of us, not all of us, some of us are sitting on the flip side of that woe. We're just, we know it. I'm not talking like someone that's like, man, I'm really struggling. Like, struggling is totally different. I'm talking about someone that's like, I don't care what the Bible says about drinking. I'm going to do it. I don't care what the Bible says about this. I don't care what you say, Jesus. I'm going to do the opposite. I don't care what this says. Then you're sitting with Capernaum. <laughs> you're sitting with Bethsaida. You're saying, look, guys, I'm giving you every opportunity. John came. He told you it was coming. I showed up, and I'm displaying the kingdom of God the way that God intended it to be, not the way that you had some preconceived notion, some religious system to do, but I'm going to display it in a totally different way. Now, will you repent? Will you turn from that way and surrender your life to me? The band's going to come up, and we're going to worship some more. On a weekend like this, I, I, always, I always feel like um, there's three kind of three positions that we can be in. There's the people then in the room that came in having a really good day that then feel guilt and shame and leave like, man, that sucked. Like, I hate this, right? First off, I, I want to I share with you, like, God is, is not a God of shame, okay? The Holy Spirit inside of you, he will convict you. My assumption is I've used examples or you have your own examples, and you're like, ah, that didn't, that didn't sit good. Ooh, like, don't run from that. Lean into it. What's interesting, like what Jesus calls himself the light. If you've ever stepped out of this dark room and into a light room, it, it, it hurts for a second, right? And most of us may, may see that like this glaring, like Jesus enlightens us and shows us something that we need to repent of. And it's like, oh, that hurts. But if you just, if you just press into, your eyes will adjust and you'll see it more clearly for what it is. And the second school, some of you are in here and you're like, I just don't care. I don't care what Jesus says about this. I don't care. I'm right. Therefore, I can sit in this pride. I'm, I don't care what, what the laws are. Therefore, I'm going to do whatever I want with drugs or alcohol. I don't care. I don't care what Jesus says about drunkenness. I'm going to do it. I don't care what he says about what it means to be a husband and wife. I don't care. You're sitting in a spot of rejection. 
And Jesus gently will tell you, look, you don't want to be there. But at some point, he's going to posture himself. And somehow in a way, not in sin, he's going to posture himself and say, woe to you. Woe to you. What do you who do you think you are? And there's a third group of us in here, and that's, that's, that's some of us that, that maybe we, we recognize that we're struggling with some areas, and we recognize that, that God is, is, is calling us out of it. Or we, we see others, brothers and sisters, that are, that are running in this rejection. My encouragement would be to just press into the messiness of the relationship. Don't, don't run from the situation. Be present. Press in and, and let God just work on your heart Show God's love and grace to the people around you. If you're in rejection, if you're sitting in this in the, the middle spot where you're just, I can't do it, then, then I, would, I would encourage you to pray this prayer. God, break me of my pride. Pray that prayer, prayer and believe it. And just, just pray that prayer over and over and over again. God, soften my heart. Break me of my pride. God, work in me. Reveal yourself to me. But just be ready. It may not be the sign you're looking for. And if you're in the first group and you're running to like shame or guilt, I would just encourage you like maybe invite someone else into the process to discern what is conviction of the Holy Spirit and what is just you running to your old shame-filled self and the enemy's trying to twist what the Spirit's doing to make you run from God. Invite someone else in this process. Say, I can't, I can't do this. Now, here's the problem. When you invite someone in that process and they say, hey, it might have something to do with the nail in your head. The trick is, is not defending, hiding, and running from that nail. But putting it through the scripture and saying, you know what? I think, I think you're right. And then God, remove, remove that nail from me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. You tell us over and over again that your, your word is, is a is double-edged sword. It cuts it divides. And so I pray for, for a room this size, knowing that, that in some way you're cutting off branches that don't, don't belong to you. You're cutting off um, maybe branches that aren't connected. Maybe some of it's you're cutting just right at the core of who we are. And we're shaken by, I don't even know how to define myself or what to do in this moment. And God, maybe you're just cutting in a way that you are just reminding us that you are the vine dresser that is going to bear much fruit through our lives for your glory. God, wherever we are, whether we are standing in rejection to you or we're standing in, in fear or expectations of some other sign, God, I pray that you would just move. For those in the, in the room that have surrendered their life to you, the spirit that lives inside them, God, would you, would you move him to lead us to be more like your son, Jesus Christ? God, for those of us that are rejecting you, standing in opposition. We're rejecting you because of one thing or another. We're rejecting you in our life. We're rejecting you with our friends. We're rejecting you in the way we live. God, would you just break us down? Break us down so that you can actually put us back together the way that we were intended to be, the way you created us to be, to live a life that brings incredible glory to you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.